Today's reading is Ezra 1, verses 1 through 4, and 3, verses 1 through 4, and 10 through 13. Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. When the seven month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the, and they kept the feast of booths as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. The word of the Lord because we're talking about something that is, um, is underappreciated, and, and it's the need to rebuild, and the reality of rebuilding, because I, I don't know if any of you in this sanctuary here have ever had the experience of, of having to rebuild um, after having like a, a home destroyed. Yes, Aaron, I knew at least one person has had the experience of having to rebuild. Now, literally or metaphorically? Okay, shaking his head both. I like that. I like that. I like that. All right. Now, um, you know, in my, in my wife's family, Laura family history, like her grandma, you know, she's always unplugging. If she comes over to your house, uh, Gigi Bev will always unplug every electronic appliance because when she was young, her home was destroyed. Wow. Was destroyed by a fire. And so uh, she has the fear of fire and the, and, and the trauma that that was of having her house burned down and having to rebuild after that. And so though it's not as maybe common as an experience as it, it used to be, it's still one that, that happens, and we hear about it. We're familiar with it. But for the majority of us, rebuilding is, we're familiar with it in the metaphorical sense. 
You know, having to rebuild our lives when they've been broken down to their very foundations, right? How, how do we rebuild when a marriage just ends, it's over? How do we rebuild when, when trust has been broken down or, or relationships have been broken by betrayal or acrimony, cold disdain, hot anger? We know about that kind of rebuilding. How do we rebuild when we've been laid off or, or fired or we've lost our job and our livelihood that provided us with stability? And more than that, it provided us with identity and the sense of purpose, a reason for, for getting up every single day and getting out of bed. How do we rebuild when we lose someone who we love and who loved us deeply, whose presence in our life is irreplaceable? How do we rebuild? How do we rebuild when illness and that can be a physical illness. It can be a mental illness. How do we rebuild when, when it knocks us down? Or maybe sometimes it feels like it's knocked us out. And you know, when we're young, I know this was true for me, you know, you spend a lot of time thinking about, about building a life. You know, how am I going to build my life? And so you think about, okay, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build my credentials by going to, to college. So I'll, I'll build my credentials. And then I'm going to build my career, you know, be successful at work. And then I'm going to build my reputation, make a name for myself out there in the world, and, and then build a, a family, you know, buy a house, have, have some kids, get a dog, build my net worth, my nest egg. You know, being young, it, it's really all about this idea of building, building, building. But the older we get, the more we have to face the harsh reality that building also involves rebuilding. We have to face the hard questions of what to do with the pile of rubble that our lives become. And there's something that's really overwhelming about the prospect of rebuilding. For, for me, when I see those, those pictures of, of natural disasters on the news, you know, after, after Superstorm Sandy or Hurricane Katrina or Hurricane uh, Maria, and you just see the utter devastation and destruction, even though I'm disconnected from, from it in a personal sense, it can be paralyzing because it's like, where does one even start? Like, how can you tear everything down and then even hope to begin to rebuild? It, it, it feels hopeless. But rebuilding, it's, it's the great theme of our passage this morning, which takes us from, from the prophets, Jeremiah and Isaiah, who we were reading the first two weeks of Advent, to Ezra, which is one of the historical books of the Old Testament. And so the book of Ezra is about the return of God's people from exile in Babylon. And their efforts to rebuild the temple and reestablish themselves in the land. And so the first week of Advent was this passage from Jeremiah. It was a, 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 a word of hope prophesied in, in the midst of ongoing destruction. That Jerusalem itself was under siege and was being destroyed as he spoke these words of great hope. Not of, of blind optimism, but hope nonetheless. And last week we heard from Isaiah who spoke a word of comfort, comfort my people, says your God, to, to a people who were homesick, living in Babylon. But today we enter into the experience of the people of God as they go back home and, and they start the hard work of rebuilding. And so we're going to look at, at three things in this passage that it has to teach us about rebuilding. First, uh, that rebuilding means being attentive uh, to the providence of God. 
Second, that, that rebuilding continues by returning and tending again to the foundations of faith. And, and lastly, that rebuilding also includes owning our emotions, our responses to the task of rebuilding. So first, it, it starts with, and it's rooted in God's providence. And so before we, we jump into this part of the sermon, just a very quick history lesson in order. So where we are historically in, in Ezra chapter 1 is this. And so as I, I've said in the past, that Israel has constantly found itself in a tug of war between the great powers of the ancient world. And so uh, the, the Babylonian Empire under King Nebuchadnezzar had attacked and sacked and utterly destroyed Jerusalem in, in 587 B.C. You know, it's one of those seminal years, those seminal dates, those seminal moments for God's people. It's like, you know, 1776 for us. We all know what comes to mind when we think that. Or December 7th, 1941. We all know what we, we think when we hear that. September 11th would probably be a better uh, an analogy for 587 and what that meant for God's people because their capital city and their temple were destroyed and the elite class were taken away into exile. And, and it's impossible, I think, to overstate just how significant that experience was, that event was, in the, in the history and the theology of God's people. Because for, to, to be a, a Jew meant that you had a homeland, and you had the monarchy, and you had the temple, that God had promised you a place to live. I mean, it's called the promised land. That God had promised that a descendant of David would, would always be on the throne, and that God, God had promised that he would be present in this place called the temple. And then the Babylonian exile, it seems to negate all of those promises, to, to throw all of them into question. There was no longer a land that belonged to them, no longer a Davidic king. That, that dynasty was over, and the temple was a burned-out husk. So when that happens, what do you do? When, when all of your life, when all of your faith really is a shambles, what do you do? When everything you've built your identity upon, your self-understanding upon, is lying in pieces on the ground, what do you do? You know, you give up, you give in, you sort of assimilate yourself to, to a new reality, a new people. No, that wasn't an option for the people of God because being one of his people means that we trust that God will provide a way for us to be renewed, reformed, rebuilt. And all of that starts with God's providence, which is to say a trust that God will act in history, act in our lives to provide us with that opportunity to rebuild. That our hope is ultimately that all will not be lost forever. So that's what's happening at the beginning of our passage today. And here's how it begins. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom. All right, so who is this Cyrus figure? He was, was the king of Persia. And Persians were the empire that arose, and they defeated the, the Babylonian empire that came before it. And, and, the, and the Persians established this, this vast empire that stretched all the way from India in the east to, to modern-day Greece in the west. I mean, it was this huge territory that they controlled. And, and the Persians took a very uh, different approach to empire building and empire controlling than the Babylonians. You know, we see in, in the destruction of Jerusalem the, the Babylonian policy of how they do empire. 
that they rule with an iron fist. And, and, and if there's any dissent or uprising, they, they crush it with, with brutality. But Cyrus took a much more enlightened approach, shall we say, and, and we see it here. And so his approach was basically to allow all the, the provinces of his empire filled with their various people groups a, a, a degree of autonomy. And these people, he didn't care. They can worship their own gods, not a problem. And they can even have their own elites in positions of authority within his empire. All they needed to do was keep the peace, you know, no rebellions, no uprising, and most importantly of all, you got to always make sure you pay your taxes. You do that. Keep the peace, <laughs> pay your taxes, you do you. And Cyrus did that. He was, he was happy to leave the people well enough alone. And our text in Ezra, it connects with what Cyrus did with the words of the prophet Jeremiah. And so what Jeremiah had said was this, that God was going to punish the people of Judah by the hand of the Babylonians. God would allow Jerusalem to be destroyed and exile to happen. But God said, after 70 years, I'm going to punish the Babylonians for what they have done to my people. And after 70 years of exile, he's going to allow the Jews to return back home. And the decree that Cyrus issued was just that, that the Jews could go back home and they could start the, the long, hard work of rebuilding everything that had been destroyed. And so rebuilding, in that sense, then starts with the providence of God, of God acting to create an unexpected opportunity for his people that comes from an unexpected place, and in this case, an unexpected person, the, the, the pagan king Cyrus. You know, the way Cyrus is referred to in Scripture, it, it's shocking. In, in Isaiah, he's referred to as the Messiah, as the Lord's anointed. And so in that way, a pagan king even can be a pointer to the true Messiah. And, and on this strange reality, the, the Venerable Bede, who was an early medieval uh, commenter, or you can call him Bede the Venerable. I don't think he minds. Either way, but he wrote in the uh, late 600s, early 700s, and he's uh, one of the great minds of his day and great commenters on uh, a scripture. And so he says this about, about how Cyrus teaches us about, about the true Messiah. He says, therefore, the Lord made Cyrus similar to his only begotten son, our God and Lord Jesus Christ, just as Cyrus, after destroying the Babylonian temple, freed the people of God and sent them back to their homeland and ordered them to rebuild the temple, which had been set on fire in Jerusalem, taking care that his edict was proclaimed everywhere and through letters, so that Jeremiah's word might be fulfilled, through which he predicted what would have happened in the future. So too, the mediator between God and humanity, after destroying all over the world the kingdom of the devil, called back from that tyranny his elect, who had been scattered and now gathers them in his church. So providence means that God can use anyone, any set of circumstances to advance, advance his kingdom and his plans and his purposes in the world. And so when our lives are a shambles, when we are standing amidst the ruins, overwhelmed, saying there's no way that I'm ever coming back from this or we're ever coming back from this, when we are overwhelmed and without hope, we need to understand that truth of God's providential care for us, that God can make a way where there is no way. That's our lifeline. Now, what does this look like in, in real life? I mean, 
you can probably think personally of maybe some times where you've been really knocked down on the canvas and you were able to get back up. And I think for our community itself, I think, I think Res Minneapolis itself is a, a testimony to God making a way where it seemed that there was no way that our, our ministry cooperative here was born from God showing up in an unexpected way and, and providing us with an unexpected opportunity to rebuild. We didn't see it coming, right, to re- rebuild what was an aging congregation months probably away from, from shuttering its doors, along uh, with a, a you know, few months old church plant that, you know, if I'm being totally honest, probably wasn't going to make it either. Apart, we were nothing, sort of some scattered stones on the ground crumbling and falling apart, but God presented us with an opportunity, one that wasn't expected, one that there wasn't really like some super clear playbook for, but we did it anyway, and God reused that to rebuild a ministry here. That's God's providence, creating an opportunity for us to rebuild. So it starts with God's providence, but, but rebuilding, it, it continues with, with really relaying, re, retending to the foundational elements of our faith. And so our reading this morning, you know, we, we fast forward from Ezra chapter 1, and here we are in chapter 3. And so a, a group of Jewish exiles have now returned to Jerusalem after decades away. And so they settle in, in the towns, and the first thing that they get busy doing is the work of rebuilding the temple that had been utterly destroyed 40 years before. And so the people rebuild, they rebuild by getting back to basics. And, and here in Ezra 3, we, we learn what those basic things are, the first things that they do. And so it says that they laid the foundation of the temple again. And so if we want to rebuild, we too must tend to the foundational elements of our faith as well. And so one of the, those foundational elements is, is unity. Notice what it says. It says, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. And that is a very literal translation of the Hebrew. It's capturing that idiom. They gathered as one man, as one person to Jerusalem. And so uh, rebuilding starts with a renewed emphasis upon unity, community, togetherness. United we stand, divided we fall. And so churches and communities, they, they crumble when they're marked by, you know, divisions, factions, rumors, gossip, and strife. So these are places where it seems like every person or or every group kind of has their own agenda that they're pursuing. And so rebuilding comes when we're finally able to overcome those, set them aside for the common purpose of worshiping and glorifying God. And so the work of rebuilding, it's always bigger than any one person could ever hope to accomplish on their own. Another foundational element we see in our passage is giving selflessly. So the people rebuild the altar first so they can start to offer sacrifices. They rebuild the altar before they they even start to, to build the walls or the roof. Because when it comes to rebuilding, sacrifice and generosity are absolutely essential. And here's the thing about, they're not just, you know, sort of offering any old sacrifices. If you read the book of Leviticus, you'll know there's a, all sorts of different sacrifices that you can offer. And the ones that Ezra tells us they offer, the, the whole burnt offerings and, and the, the free will offerings, what both of those sacrifices have in common is that the person offering that sacrifice gets absolutely nothing back out of it. That the whole offering is completely consumed. Now, there's some offerings where, you know, you give it to the priest, he cuts it up, kind of roasts it, and you get some of it back. 
And I think one thing we don't really always understand about the temple worship and Old Testament sacrifices, that if you went to the temple, it was kind of like a slaughterhouse and a barbecue pit mixed all in one. Like that there was a lot of eating that actually took place there. But these are the types of offerings where you get nothing back. The whole offering is consumed. And so rebuilding means making costly and generous sacrifices for God for things that won't necessarily directly benefit us. Do you know what that reminds me of? The, the, the Elevate campaign that, that, we, that we just undertook. Um, and, and if you're new here, we, we just did a capital campaign to raise money for uh, accessibility for our facility. And so when I think about that, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars pledged towards this, um, am I going to need to use that elevator right away? No. Is anyone in my family? No. Although the truth is, the day is going to come. If we live long enough, the day is going to come for all of us where climbing uh, all of these stairs is no small matter. So why are we making these massive sacrifices for something that won't directly benefit the vast majority of us? You know, I tried to explain that to one of my sons, and he had a really hard time understanding that. And he's a kid, so, and especially the kind of kid he, he is, he couldn't help but really being honest about his feelings and sharing them with me. Most of us are better at, if we even think those thoughts, we don't speak them out loud to anyone or in polite company or we, we put on a mask. But I think he at least said what, what some people might be thinking, or at least part of them are thinking, why are we spending so much money on something that won't benefit me and is really only going to benefit a couple of people? So what's the answer to that? because it's the godly, faithful thing to do. And honestly, sacrifice is not for ourselves. It's not for us. It's for God. And it's not even for the people who are going to use it right away. It's for God. We're doing it for him because we love him and we want to do what's faithful and pleasing in his sight. And we're doing it for people we don't even know yet. And in fact, we're, we're doing it really for people who we will never know because we will be dead and buried and long forgotten before they're ever using it. We'll be doing for them what the long-forgotten women and men did for us back in the 1920s, the early 1920s, when they sacrificed and gave generally, generously so we could have this sanctuary here, which stands to this day almost 100 years later. So we get to do for future generations what previous generations did for us. Just like those Israelites in Jerusalem did that day. They were doing something for, for generations that would not include them. And we also get the added benefit of blessing families who need it and feeling good about ourselves because we did something about a longstanding problem. So that's also an added bonus too. But getting back to basics, right? An emphasis upon unity, sacrificing for something greater than ourselves. But the last part of getting back to basics is captured in these words. Where Ezra writes that they built an altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. And then later, and when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and all their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Ahath, Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, the king of Israel. And so getting back to basics. Rebuilding our foundations means being attentive to what Ezra calls the, the law of Moses and the directions of David, the king of Israel. And so what he's talking about here is scripture. 
that rebuilding means returning again to God's word as it is given to us in scripture. Now from time to time, occupational hazard, I guess, I get uh, emails from people who I don't know asking me a lot of questions about the Christian faith. And I got one of those um, this week. And it was, it was a laundry list email asking me about what I believed about all these various things about the Christian faith. And now I don't actually really bother with replying to long emails from people I don't know that appear to have some kind of agenda behind them, I guess. Uh, but I do read them. And the person this week, they asked a question about what I thought about the Bible. And I thought, well, that's a, a timely question this week as I'm looking at this passage. And so I, I love scripture. And, and the best short answer that I can give and about what I believe about it comes from the, 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 the covenant church tradition that says the writings of the Old and New Testament are the only perfect rule for faith, doctrine, and conduct. And so when it says rule, it's not talking about some, you know, kind of new set of, of laws or legalism, but but rule as like a ruler, a measuring stick. That's actually where the Greek word canon comes from. It means a measuring rod, a measuring stick. And so canon is this sense that it's an authoritative collection of, of works or, or writings. There's the canon of scripture. There's the canon of, of cinema, canon of, of Western literature. And so scripture provides us with, with a canon, with a ruler, a measuring stick, whereby we can evaluate our faith, what we are to believe about God, and our conduct, a measure for how we live our lives, and a measure for our doctrine, what we teach people about God. And so scripture is our measure for those things. And it's an incredible gift from God. And so when we study it well, and we follow it faithfully with the power of the Holy Spirit, it is for us an inexhaustible treasury of wisdom. And that's just what we need when we want to rebuild. We need God's wisdom to know when and, and where do we start and what do we keep with us and, and what do we got to leave behind. So rebuilding means returning to those foundations once again. And this is true for the Jews returning from exile. It's true for every church and for our individual lives. It means unity, finding a community of people to work with, who can support us as we work toward a common goal. It means sacrificing and giving of ourselves for something greater, a project that will extend beyond our lifetimes, and it means returning again to Scripture, those inspired words through which God has chosen to reveal himself to us in a way of life that is pleasing to him. And as Christians, we know that tending to the foundation also means turning our attention back to the church's one foundation, Jesus Christ. He's our foundation, and to build our lives on anything other than our loyalty to him and faithfulness to his teachings is to build a house upon sinking sand. All right, trust God's providence. Go back to the foundations. But lastly, rebuilding also means what I am calling owning our emotions. Now, what does that mean? Let's look at the last words from our passage. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the, of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, the first temple, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. So when the foundation of, of this second temple 
is laid again. There are two sounds being made, joyful shouts and sad weeping. And so friends, rebuilding, it includes both. There were shouts of joy because there was hope for a future now, a hope that the young people who had never seen that first temple and had known only exile, they, they never dreamed that this could happen to them. God was doing a new thing and they were part of it. And so there was rejoicing about what God was going to do through them. But there was also weeping because the old folks had seen the old temple and they had seen it in all of its glory and its splendor. It was a wonder of the ancient world. And here they were, worshiping in a charred, desiccated husk that reminded them of everything that they had lost. Now, it's easy for me to stand up here in the pulpit and, and judge those old people, right? They're bad. They, they should have not been looking back. They should have been looking forward and celebrating what was happening. But the way I read the text this morning, the, the, the old people aren't being judged. In fact, the sound, Ezra tells us, the sound they made was indistinguishable from the sound that the young people were making, from those shouts of joy. Which tells me that Ezra here is telling us that part of rebuilding is just owning our emotions in the moment. No matter what they are, we have permission to feel how we feel. We don't have to hide it. We don't have to pretend that we're happy when we're sad or we're sad when we're happy. We don't have to pretend like we're celebrating when really what we're doing is grieving what has been lost. And so I want to say today, if, if the changes that have happened in the last few years in church make you feel sad, I understand that. Things aren't what they used to be. It's not the 40s, 50s, 60s, or late aughts or early teens of this century. Maybe those are the glory days. But, but you have God-given permission to feel the way you feel about it. And any rebuilding process means that, that we have the freedom and the responsibility to own our emotions, which to me means understanding where those come from, naming them and giving them to God as an act of worship. Because praise and lament, those are both valid forms, scriptural, deeply biblical forms of prayer. But notice what this owning of emotions doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that the people who were sad and grieving didn't participate in this rebuilding project. It didn't give them permission to sit around sulking and exclude themselves from the hard, sacrificial, and necessary work that God had given them. So it's okay to feel how you feel. But no matter how you feel, we are in this thing together. And this mixture that we see at the end of Ezra 3 of joy and tears, isn't this just the human condition? Isn't this fitting for Advent as we await the return of Jesus, whose birth was a cause for great joy and celebration in the heavens, but Jesus became like us, and he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. So life between the first and second Advent, between Christ's first coming and his coming again, life where we live is a mixture of rejoicing and weeping. And so we can just own that. And though this world at times might seem like it's nothing but rubble or it's, it's crumbling, we might feel like we've been broken and scattered on the grounds. We, too, are part of God's rebuilding project. Here's how First Peter puts it. He says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, which means discarded, scattered on the ground, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, 
to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So God is taking rubble like you and me, and he is putting us together and using us to build something wonderful. All in all, we're just another brick in the wall. And that is good news. Because God is going to rebuild his kingdom and his world through us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me.